Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and I want to begin today by giving you a healthy dose of existential dread. That is because I want to start by discussing this unknown, largely unknown figure in history named Stanislav Petrov. Who knows who Petrov is? Anybody? One person. Well, you should. You should know this name because this man might have made the most important gamble in history and in doing so saved the entire planet. You see, he did this not by being James Bond, but rather through bureaucracy, bravery, and following his gut. And that's because Petrov was a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet air defense and was in command of the Oko nuclear early warning system on September 26, 1983, when said system reported the launch of five nuclear weapons out of the United States of America, which, if you understand military command, is an alarm that effectively acted as a direct order for him to report these incoming missiles and thus initiate retaliatory strikes across the United States of America, effectively starting an apocalyptic nuclear war. Who wants that job? <laughs> Didn't think so. I mean, can you imagine being in this position and having this warning, this is not a drill, come across your desk? But let me ask you, is that what Petrov did? Did he follow orders? No, because we are still alive, y'all. <laughs> We're not living in like the hollowed out, you know, Statue of Liberty, like the Planet of the Eights or whatever. No, he obviously didn't. Petrov later reported that something just felt odd for neither number of reasons. It just felt off, right? I mean, for one, why would the U.S. only launch five missiles as a first strike? The system that they were using was actually kind of new, so it was kind of doubting it. Uh, the alarm had passed through 30 layers of verification in seconds, which, mm, that's a red flag. And there had been no ground radar to confirm any of this activity. So in this decisive moment, Petrov ignored this alarm, which talk about a huge gamble, right? I mean, just try to consider for a brief moment what was on the line for this man. I mean, obviously, nationally, globally, if he's wrong, then his country is going to be obliterated without ever firing a shot. But personally, you need to understand that in the Soviet Union, even if he was declared right, this deliberate breaking of military chain of command, this breaking of orders, could have led to his execution. This is treason in a military system. His life, the life of everyone he knew, all life on earth, hung in the balance of this one choice. Yet, Despite the personal costs, Petrov trusted his gut and thanked God that he did because it was a false alarm created by, and I kid you not, a rare alignment of sunlight hitting clouds over North Dakota. <laughs> Who is existentially terrified <laughs> by the way that our world works right now? We came that close due to some clouds, to the end of all life on earth, y'all. I'm going to move off of that, but enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Anyway, what's fascinating 
is that Petrov would later admit that at no point in this decision-making process was he ever sure at all that the alarm was erroneous. Instead, what he said was he credited his life in civil service to give him the wisdom and really the empathy to make this decision, even as all of his military training was screaming at him to just follow orders. He had lived this life amongst real people, lived it well, and over years and years of doing so, it led him to be able to make this critical decision when it mattered most. And isn't that just an insane story, right? Does anyone else think that's crazy? And for me, and this is where I really want to go with this, for me, it highlights what I find to be one of the most interesting parts about the nature of human history. You see, I largely reject the great man, as it is often called, view of history. That is, the idea that history is primarily directed by heroic individuals who, by their individual actions, bend history kind of according to their will. I actually think that's an extreme fallacy. You know, from my perspective, in reality, history is far more shaped by currents far bigger than any individual. Political shifts, social movements, cultural landscapes, technological innovation, economic forces, these historical tides that shape us far more than we knowingly direct them. To summarize, I tend to believe that history makes the individual far more than individuals make history. Are y'all tracking with me on that? And yet, what I love about a story like Petrov's is that it pushes against my perspective, at least a little bit. It pushes against any simple dualisms, binaries, when it comes to how we think about the scope of something as big as history. A story like Petrov's highlights that history is actually directed by both of these things. It's not an either-or proposition. It's directed by both systems and individuals, both sweeping currents, of culture and singular moments where history swung not as an inevitability, but because individual people made choices to gamble on the right thing, the right conviction, the right idea when the cards were on the table and it all was on the line. It's a both and paradox. And I start here because it's that kind of balance between both the individual and these tides of history that really lies in the heart of the Book of Ruth's final chapter, which we'll explore today. This Old Testament story that we've been covering here at E3 for a few weeks now that we're gonna conclude today, where in this final chapter, it's one individual's gamble that ends up creating some of the most massive and unexpected ripple effects across the biblical story, and as a Christian, I would say human history. So that's where we're gonna go today. But first, I wanna recap briefly where we've been so far. As a reminder, recall, Ruth began with one Israelite family who, due to famine, moved from Israel to who remembers where? Moab. Bam! Land of the Moabites. And why is that important? Who are the Moabites? The ancient enemies of Israel. They moved to this place, not because they want to, but like I said, because there's famine in the land, and that Moab is where there is food. So they moved to Moab, and among the, among the Moabites, they experienced this tragedy. That's because in Moab, the family's father and both sons die, leaving its matriarch, this woman named Myomi, and her two widowed Moabite daughters-in-law, orphan Ruth, completely destitute, forcing Naomi to return home while imploring both women to leave her behind, to abandon her, which Orpah does. But does Ruth? No. 
Instead, despite all self-preservation, Ruth commits to follow Naomi no matter what. Wherever you go, that's where I'm going to. Returning to Israel with her, where she meets this generous Israelite named who? Anyone remember? Boaz, this farmer who cares for Naomi and Ruth and is revealed as chapter three ends as being Naomi's relative. Thus, a potential family redeemer. And on that, we're gonna need to pause for a little bit because this family redeemer concept is central to Ruth's conclusion and yet totally alien to us today. It's an ancient Israelite cultural practice that's related to concepts concerning land and family lineage. Who's excited about those things? Anybody? Yeah, yeah, right. Anyway, that'd be really boring, but I promise this is important. You see, the scriptures uphold that all land belongs to and is a gift from this guy called God. Ever heard of him? Yes, okay. This is true for the entire planet. It all comes from our creator and the creator gifts it to us by grace. But it is especially true, according to the Hebrew worldview, for Israel. And that's because as the story goes, Israel came into existence entirely because of God's grace after he covenanted with this one person who remembers that guy's name, Abraham, and promises that his descendants will receive from him a future home. This promise that God fulfills over the course of the first five books of the Bible, leading Israel to the promised land of which each family from Israel receives a portion in perpetuity as their God-given inheritance, the promised land, right? Which carried many implications, but primarily for today, that for ancient Israelites, the preservation of one's family line and the possession of your ancestral land within Israel was the most important thing you could imagine. These two things, family line, land, became the fundamental signs of God's faithfulness to his people, of which you were a part in one's divine inheritance as his chosen people. They're both massively important. But alas, situations arise where selling one's ancestral land might be necessary for survival, right? When it comes down to and you got old grandpa's farm on one hand and starvation on the other, which one are you going to choose? You're going to sell old grandpa's farm, correct? It's a critical choice. It's just part of being in a broken world. But the Old Testament accounted for such situations. And it did so by dictating that all land sales within Israel were never permanent. Essentially that all ancestral land could always in perpetuity be reclaimed by its original owners via a whole variety of mechanisms cost-controlled repurpose, the year of Jubilee, or for today, this thing called the right of redemption, which upheld that if an Israelite man died, then it became the moral responsibility of the next closest male relative to repurchase their ancestral land, marry their widow, adopt their children, and continue their family line. Who finds that strange? <laughs> it's incredibly strange. Do not get me wrong. I am not endorsing this as something we should be doing today, right? But I do want to highlight that we should think about such things that we read in this ancient thing called the Hebrew Scriptures and the Old Testament. We should understand these things in context because in their ancient historical context, you have to think about what this practice did. Think about it. It provided a safety net for two of the most marginalized people groups in the entire ancient world, widows and orphans, right? It ensured that in case of tragedy, they would not be left to starve to death. That family would have to step up and care for them. But beyond that, as a theological principle, it also ensured that those two critical things would continue, both the family line and that family's control of their ancestral inheritance, the land, 
within Israel. So though, again, I'm not saying that we should all go out and marry the widows of our brothers, it served a purpose in this time, in this place, in terms of caring for the poor, the oppressed, the least, the last, the lost. Are you following me on that? And this is critical because despite how strange this practice is, it directs Ruth's conclusion. We need to understand it because it's at the heart of how this story ends. And that's because Naomi's lost her ancestral land. Likely she sold it during the famine or her husband who has now died sold it during the famine. And thus Boaz's arrival as this potential family redeemer creates the first cause for hope when it comes to these marginalized, destitute women who are trying to escape from poverty. It is the first time in the story that there is a chance that they're going to get back some of what they have lost through the tragedy of their lives. Thus, as Scott explored last week, Ruth and Naomi devised this scheme, right, where Ruth asked Boaz directly, confronted him to do this ancient practice, to step up as the family redeemer which he agreed to do. But then chapter three came to an end with a cliffhanger. This revelation that there's another relative, uh uh-oh, who actually holds this redemption right before Boaz, putting everything on pause. Tracking with me? Good, because with that, we're gonna pick up chapter four. Verse one, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. So immediately, the next day, Boaz goes out to the town gate, which in an ancient Israel town was the primary public meeting space. It was the most trafficked public space. And fun fact, it was where legal courts were held. And he sits down and he waits, hoping that this first redeemer is going to happen by, which he does. And this is really interesting because this character is only identified in the Hebrew as what translates quite literally to so-and-so. <laughs> it's a term that's only used in Hebrew literature when someone is being intentionally left anonymous by an author. Very odd, but hold that thought. Anyway, the man comes by, and I love this part. This is great. Boaz engages so-and-so as if it's just a casual conversation. Hey, what's up, man? Come have a seat before slyly calling over the elders responsible for binding legal decisions and publicly calling on so-and-so to redeem Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech's ancestral land in front of the entire crowd. He's got him, right? And we're like, ah, the trap. But then we also immediately think that this trap has failed, right? Because what does so-and-so immediately do? He immediately agrees to do it, right? And we're like, you know, people who have had our minds rotted by rom-coms are like, no! We want Ruth with Boaz. No! This is the worst outcome. But hold up. Why is this such an easy decision for so-and-so? I want you to think about this. It's because, based on what information Boaz has shared, so-and-so thinks that only Boaz and himself remain in this family line, making this an opportunity to cheaply repurchase land without anyone ever coming to reclaim it. Let me ask you, 
Is that true? No, it is not. Verse five. And then Boaz says, oh, by the way, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead and his property. So Boaz is like, oh man, I forgot to mention, by the way, Elimelech also left behind this destitute foreign widow who you're going to have to marry and this aging mother-in-law you're going to have to support for the rest of her life, and that's all going to come as part of redeeming this land. This is an interesting move, right? You see, we know that Boaz loves and wants to marry Ruth and that he believes that God has called him to justice, to care for them. But to do either, he has to convince so-and-so to both acknowledge his right to redemption and then relinquish said right to redemption to Boaz, the next member of the family. Thus, what Boaz is doing here is making a gamble. You see, he's betting that with this information, so-and-so won't want this obligation despite the benefit of gaining the land. And he's doing that, he's encouraging that by employing two very clever strategies. First, Boaz explicitly highlights that Ruth's a what? A Moabite, a hated enemy. He's betting that prejudice will make marrying a Moabite an insurmountable barrier for so-and-so. He highlights that because he thinks that's going to matter in this guy making this decision. And second, by springing all of this on so-and-so so publicly, Boaz really does put him in a bind. To say yes to redeeming the land, but not to marrying this Moabite widow would reveal that he's motivated purely by greed, not by honoring God, not by caring for the marginalized. He's forcing so-and-so to publicly choose between honoring all these redeemer obligations or relinquishing all of them to Boaz. All the chips are down, right? Thus, Boaz ensures that Ruth and Naomi will get provision no matter what. So-and-so's gonna do it because he's being shamed in this public way to do so, or it's gonna be Boaz. Either way, good news for those two in terms of their physical needs. But the love story at the core of this tale, that still hangs in the balance of this gambit. With that, we pick up in verse six. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own state. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier Israel times, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to another. Okay, this was a method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian and redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Milan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Milan's wife, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Epaphrath and we be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom to Morbo to Jua. Judah. Whew, close call, right? With this new information, does so-and-so want any of this? No, he wants no part of it. He comes up with this really flimsy excuse, like, oh, my estate, uh. <laughs> Nonsense. The point is that he backs out. He wanted easy money, not poor dependents or Moabite heirs. 
revealing why he's called so-and-so by the author. In disregarding justice, he wilts into anonymity, forgotten to history. Surrendering the right to redemption with this ancient custom of exchanging sandals, which I still think we should do today. Super dope. <laughs> like, here, take my sneaks. <laughs> I digress. After which, Boaz publicly commits to Ruth and Naomi with this beautiful speech. And if you notice, he names Naomi's deceased loved ones for the first time since Ruth's introduction, promising to honor and remember them to not negate her loss as the story comes to an end, while highlighting again that Ruth is a what? A Moabite. Is Boaz scared off by prejudice, bias, racism? No. No, Boaz accepts, affirms, and embraces Ruth fully for who she is in front of the whole town. And the tale concludes with a happy ending. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who's better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the children in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of King David. I just love this conclusion. It's intentionally designed to thematically mirror chapter one in almost every way. Death is mirrored here by birth. Naomi's bitter weeping with joy and celebration with the women of the town. Ruth giving away her future to commit to Naomi is now mirrored here with her gaining a future she never thought possible in Israel. All of which highlight how from its opening tragedy, the story has always been about how these characters act of said, generosity, justice, righteousness, love, loyalty have been threading together into this tapestry of renewed joy, blessing, and life. All before closing with that genealogy we covered in chapter one, which reveals in a shocking twist that these ordinary folks, this Moabite woman, became central to the lineage of King David and thus who? Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As commentator Frederick Bush summarizes all together the loving commitment of Ruth the Moabitess to Naomi, which transcended the clans of national origin and religion, Boaz's faithfulness to his responsibilities of justice, which transcended self-interest, Naomi's concern for the welfare of her daughter-in-law, and Yahweh's silent but gracious provision, all have worked together to afford home for Ruth, the restoration of life and fullness for Naomi, and inestimable benefits for Israel and all of mankind wrapping their small tale into God's larger redemptive history. Can I get an amen? That's what Ruth's about. And that's just beautiful, am I right? And as we close out this book that I just love, this small tale that just packs such a punch, I want to conclude by highlighting just two final thoughts that have really stuck with me, both over the course of this series and then one from this chapter in specific. The first relates to this larger theme from Ruth about the seasonal nature of life. And this is a theme that has just resonated with me in the season of grief that I am currently walking through after losing my sponsor. You see, what I have found over my life is that it's easy to associate God's presence with my circumstances. Or let's just be honest how I feel about my circumstances. Equating good times 
where I get what I want with God's blessing. Anyone else? Which doesn't sound problematic when you say it out loud until you consider the implications, until you consider what bad times imply in such a framework. The seasons of failure, disappointment, loss, where I don't get what I want. Because if God's blessing and presence is tied to my circumstance or how I feel about my circumstances, then y'all, that would mean that he is absent when things aren't going great or even punishing me when I'm not getting my way. Anyone else? Y'all, that's toxic way to think. Ruth and Naomi's story fundamentally rejects that as a framework for our reality. Yes, they're restored at the end, but in hindsight, was God ever absent or punishing these good people? Even during the story's worst tragedy? Yes or no? No. No. This isn't about them re-earning God's blessing because they lost it because they had sinned or something like that. It's not about them re-earning God's presence or God erasing their loss with this new baby. Like, no worries, fam. Forget about the kids you lost. Here are some new ones. That's not what the story's about. That is not healthy. That is not what Ruth is trying to convey. These women go through seasons of tragedy and restoration because that's life in this world sometimes, y'all. Cycles, seasons, ups and downs. It's not always tied to whether I earned it or not. This is a story about two people who despite suffering still chose love, grace, compassion, generosity, and doing so exited the other side of this season of tragedy with newfound trust and serenity that has let them accept seasons of want and abundance, beauty and tragedy, suffering and joy, because they, in hindsight, can now see that it was all a gift and that God was with them through it all. Even when he seemed silent, even when he seemed absent, he was never not with them. That's what Ruth's about. So, y'all, if you're in such a season, I need you to hear me on this. You are not alone. Regardless of how you may feel about your circumstances, this God of Ruth loves you. He is with you in your pain. And he is promising to walk you through that pain to redemption on the other side, even if that looks nothing like what you hoped for when you started out in your journey. That's what Ruth's about. Ruth cries out, have hope. Can I get an amen? And the second idea, though, the second idea, it relates to this, this fundamental contrast at the end of this chapter between Boaz and so-and-so. And y'all, this has just been gnawing at me all week. You see, so-and-so isn't a monster. He's not like a bad dude. He's not a villain, if you will. So-and-so is just selfish. And in this one moment, he considered justice for the marginalized to be too inconvenient for him to act on it, for him to do what was right. And y'all, we're all guilty of that, right? In our own way, an opportunity to serve, to bless, to be generous, to help the least, the last, and the lost comes across our way, and we're just like, I just got to get to my haircut. <laughs> Anyone else? We've all been there. The point of the story is not that he's a bad dude, but at the same time, in doing so, he becomes anonymous, while Boaz is remembered in this story. And y'all, that struck me. See, there's a consequence for abdicating our responsibility. Not divine punishment. God didn't, boom, smite so-and-so. But rather missing out on something bigger than ourselves. Missing out 
and getting wrapped into this redemptive story that God wants to write for these broken people, like the story of Ruth and Naomi. And in that, Ruth challenged me to remember that, quite frankly, God's people are called to higher standards than I often want to admit. You see, I often use the world around me as my measuring stick when it comes to acts of a said, justice, generosity, mercy, compassion, and love. Well, no one else is helping those orphans and widows, so I guess I'm off the hook. Anyone else? And y'all, that is not it. That ain't it. That's nonsense. We are given one measuring stick for how we are to operate in this world, and that is God's character revealed through one place, Christ crucified. We are called to be a people who measure success solely by whether or not we poured ourselves out for the least, the last, the lost today. Who exceed the levels of charity, love, justice, and generosity that our world calls good enough. And I say this not to shame anyone. I'm right there with y'all. I'm also not trying to imply that we have to live well to avoid divine punishment or earn divine rewards. That's not the gospel. Do not hear what I'm not saying. No, what I am saying is that Ruth reminds me that I committed to living like Christ did because one, that's the only appropriate response to God's grace, and two, because I'd rather be a Boaz than a so-and-so in this world. I don't want to be someone who asks, what's in it for me when history is on the line, when it matters most, when the orphan or widow stands in front of me. I don't want to say what's in it for me or for wilting into selfishness. No, I want to be the person who makes the Christ-like decision when things are on the line, regardless of the personal cost. Am I the only one? Anyone else? Bunch of so-and-sos, I guess. (laughs) But here's the thing, y'all. That requires taking my daily life seriously. Boaz didn't make this decision as some heroic feat, completely like apart from who he was the day before. No, it says that Boaz had noble character before this moment in the text. Boaz made the right decision when it mattered because he had already let God shape him before it came. This decision, this moment, this hinge of history. Boaz took his daily life seriously and thus was the kind of person who could not have made a different choice when the hurt person came to him and asked for help. That's what reminded me of Petra, a man whose well-lived life led him to divert the world from disaster. Y'all, that's who I want to be. Anyone else? One more time. So, as we worship, reflect with me. Where is God calling you to cultivate a life of justice, mercy, and generosity day by day so that you're ready to gamble on who God calls you to be when the chips are down? Who do you need to stand up for in this world? Taking your resources, your time, your talents, your treasures, your privileges, putting them into play for the widows and the orphans, the marginalized, the broken, the forgotten. Where do you need to commit to a life where you go above and beyond what the world calls good enough? when it comes to mirroring our God to a broken world. That's being a disciple of this Messiah whose family flowed from people like you and me choosing to live well in every season of this life. That's what Ruth's about.
Amen? Amen. Let's worship.